Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Thinking is Cool, the show designed to make your next conversation better than your last. I'm Kinsey Grant, and I am so thrilled to be back in the saddle today. It has been a minute since I got behind this here mic and asked some big thorny questions, and I am so amped to get back to doing what I love most. I hope you've all had a restful off-season so far, because we are jumping in today with an unmissable and fast paced follow-up to one of my most widely dissected episodes ever, the crypto episode. Yes, the rumors are true. Today, you are getting the Web3 Primer. So let's get down to business. So today we are doing what we call a continuing the conversation episode. I've done these before and I'm planning to do a whole lot more in the future, but essentially our stated purpose with this is to just think through another very important facet of an episode I have already published. Today, that episode in question is a season one deep cut about Bitcoin and the cryptofication of the modern economy. So if you have not listened to that episode, I highly encourage you to go do that first. And if you have already listened to that episode, thank you. I love you. And I'll give you a quick refresher since it has been a while since the episode came out. So in that crypto piece, I wanted to explore whether crypto really might be the future of everything, like some of its biggest evangelists have notoriously promised. And my take was essentially we don't know. There are so many directions for the crypto path to veer that it's difficult to say what will and won't be impacted by the mainstream adoption of crypto technology. And in the episode, I weighed a few potential futures for crypto. It could become the future of global currency systems, the future of the internet, the future of wealth building, or quite frankly, nothing at all. But the thing is this, at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter if we don't know what the future of crypto looks like. It doesn't really matter if we don't know what it means to mine Bitcoin or what a node is, at least not now, but it could soon. I thought of it like this, even if crypto is the future of everything, a working proficiency can be enough today. In the episode, I referenced the idea that we have around understanding our current monetary systems, our current economic paradigm. Any conversation that you have with your family members this holiday season, I'm sure somebody will bring up inflation and you will certainly think to yourself, these people have no idea what inflation actually is or that's not how commodities pricing works. But still, your great aunt, your uncle, your cousin, your second cousin, they all participate in the economy without knowing exactly how it works. And that's okay. Now, I'm not saying that they should get away scot-free. It is best to know the intricacies of a system if you want to be in a position to take advantage of it. I mean, those who get finance, those who get how commodities are priced or who get inflation are typically the types who are reaping the most benefits in today's economy. So today, I want to take some time to go a step further and work to understand a complicated topic within what could be the future of the economy and really important in a post-Satoshi world, I want to get Web3 because I want to be one of those people who's in a position to benefit from this new economic paradigm. So in this conversation, we're going to talk about the ways that we can take these second and third order pieces of the crypto conversation and apply learnings to bigger, bolder, perhaps more monumental technological shifts that are happening right now. It is time to get Web3 and the practical application of a new decentralized kind of internet. So without further ado, 
Let's roll my conversation with Gabby Goldberg, Web3 investor at TCG and one of Twitter's very favorites. I would love, Gabby, if you could kind of just explain a little bit how you got into this space. Give me a little background about who you are, what you do, um, and how you got started in like the crypto Web3 world, these ecosystems. What's your what's your story? Yeah, totally. Normally, I don't do this, but I actually think for the Web3 story, it makes sense for me to start kind of at the very beginning. So my background is I'm from Southern California, but really was born and for like the first decade of my life grew up in Connecticut. And I say this in two parts. So one thing I want to say is I grew up online. I'm 22 years old. And so I've always grown up with the internet. But also when I lived in Connecticut, before I moved to California, I grew up selectively mute. So for a large portion of that time growing up, I didn't talk to anybody except my parents and my brothers. And the reason this is important is I spent a lot of time online. (laughs) I spent a ton of time playing games like Minecraft and RuneScape. And I actually didn't think that those experiences had any value at all until I sold those accounts when I was a teenager and realized I was actually like making pretty good money for a 14 year old. I got on Tumblr very early, like a bunch of other Gen Z girls. That's where I learned how to code and just generally always grew up with this notion of online communities and online friends. And so now being in Web3, that's not something that is new to me. When I went to college, I studied computer science and philosophy at Stanford to better understand how people interact with technology. I think I was still kind of chasing this experience from my childhood of of what was this like for me growing up online and what does this mean for the rest of the world? Um, I worked in the VR lab at school to do research on how people make decisions in VR and how we make friends in virtual space. And then when I graduated, I went straight into early stage consumer investing. So first I was at chapter one, which is a seed stage fund based in LA. And then I spent a year at Bessemer Venture Partners, which is multi-stage and multi-sector. But I was on their early stage consumer team, really thinking about what the future of the internet might look like. I kind of got into Web3 during that last year at Bessemer. I was spending a lot of time working with creators and consumer companies. And generally, I, I was realizing how we've all seen how the role of the individual in value creation has grown and grown in importance. So we've seen marketplaces like Kickstarter and Patreon and Substack and Cameo. And these were the types of companies that I was diligencing in my work. And I saw they all emerge to allow us to directly fund the products and information that we consume. So I saw that, you know, these networks that we interact with every day, we build them, we operate them, we fund them. And it didn't make sense that we couldn't own them too. I had a really poignant experience. I was working with some creators and a a creator company that was basically like a paywalled account for you to be able to uh, like share more intimate experiences with your audience and your fans. Um, And so this platform was hosted on the app store. And so creators could download the app, make an account and share it with their audience and add like an additional stream of revenue. Um, And I was talking to a bunch of creators who were having really positive experiences on this app. And I realized that because it's hosted on the app store, 30% of the revenues that they made through this app went back to Apple. And so this was the first time I I kind of sat back and thought, this this can't be right. Like, this is not the end goal. This is not the answer. Maybe if you're a big business that has an app on the App Store, 30% is just a line on the balance sheet. But if you're a creator trying to make a living online, like this is what we've been preaching for years about the creator economy. It doesn't make sense for 30% to go back to a huge monopoly. So I kept having experiences like these in my job, working with these you know, web two consumer and creator companies. And I realized that there had to be another way. That's when I got into web three, which I know we'll be talking about a lot more later, but um, 
I decided I wanted to be investing into what the future of the internet might look like from, from that perspective. So uh, I now do Web3 investing at TCG or the Chernin Group, uh, and I focus on their early stage investments at the intersection of consumer and crypto. Um, there is a really, really huge translation gap between Web2 and Web3, which is why I think it's so important to have this conversation. And it's also why we're approaching this from a consumer perspective at TCG of, you know, how do we bring the next 10, 50, 100 million users into crypto, uh, building products that are not just for the people who are, you know, already on MetaMask engaging in DeFi, but for the 3 billion people who are on social apps and might not have any idea what an NFT is today. Yeah. Um, so I'll stop there, but no, I, conversation. yeah, me too. And I, I love that you introduce yourself with like such a, a personal story that I think really does serve an incredible purpose in this conversation of reinforcing the idea that while a lot of the conversation that we're going to be having today is technical, and a lot of these terms are new terms, new to me, new to a lot of the people who are going to be listening to this, at the core, this is still driven in a lot, a, a large part by the human experience of, of creating community, whatever that community looks like, sounds like, walks like, talks like, that community is important. And of course, like the consumer angle is important here. We will get into in just a minute the differences between Web 2 and Web 3, but I think a big part of it has kind of been, you know, the, the consumer the the broad base of consumers, the average everyday, maybe a little tech literate kind of consumer is still going to be able to benefit from a lot of these new technologies. They might not totally understand it right now in a year from now, even, but this is still going to be something that could potentially impact regular consumers, not just like the crypto punks online, right? And that was a big part of what I talked about in the, the original episode that we're kind of riffing on today, this crypto episode understanding the ins and outs, the technical nuances of what crypto is and how crypto works isn't a requisite for participating in this new version of the economy, right? Like not everybody understands inflation. It doesn't keep us from using dollars and cents. That's just the reality of the of the situation. But why I want to talk about this today and why I feel so strongly about having conversations like these is it the people who do understand inflation are the people who are making the most money in the traditional economy. If you do have that baseline understanding, if you do have the context and the nuance and you understand how the pipes work, you are in a position to take advantage of any new technological process that's taking shape, right? So that's why we're having this conversation. And this is kind of designed to, to continue that original conversation. We're going to talk some about why this is the post-crypto conversation we're having, but also just learn a little bit more about Web3 because in all honesty, I didn't know a ton about Web3. And Josh, who has been kind of a recurring character, works with me on Thinking is Cool and Smooth Up. Josh is like a Web3 head right now. I don't know what they're called. Like, is there a nickname for people who are deep into this space? Like, well, a, he's, he's crypto-pilled. Crypto-pilled. Yeah, totally. He, he's like, he drank the Kool-Aid, right? Like, he's, he's right, in exactly. it. He wrote me a memo all about this stuff before I was even making this episode. Like, he's deep into it. And I was reading some of the notes that he had given me to to, to kind of get me up to speed on what this next version of the internet looks like, what community can look like in the future online. And it's just so deeply interesting. And I think that what I'm coming to terms with today is that this is the first technological revolution in my life. I'm 27, the first technological revolution in my life where I kind of feel like I'm behind. It's not necessarily native to me. Like I understood Instagram the second I downloaded it. My parents don't, but I got it. Like I, I understand it. I, I could get it immediately. And with Web3, with this new technology that we're talking about, with this new even like technological paradigm we're talking about, it doesn't come as naturally to me. So I want to to try to think about it this way, right? Like 
we need kind of the primer on Web3. Then we're going to get into why we're talking about this post-crypto. We're going to talk about some technological applications. We're going to talk about use cases. We're going to talk about risks and opportunities and all of that good stuff. But the most important question to ask at the beginning here is just what is Web3? The first thing I'll say even before I get into that is you mentioned feeling really behind on this. And I also felt that way when I got into the space, right? Like I didn't buy Bitcoin in 2013. I haven't been like deep in the space. I'm not a crypto whale by any means. But what I want to really stress on is you and anyone else listening to this is very, very, very early. We are just getting started and there's a lot more work that needs to be done. And that's the exciting part. And I think the reason that things are complicated or difficult to understand today is just because we're so early and the really powerful consumer experiences and on-ramps, quite honestly, just haven't been built yet. But that's where the opportunity lies. Um, So I will get in by explaining what is Web3. Uh, It won't make sense unless I explain Web2 and also Web1. So honestly, we just have to do a brief history of the internet. Give me the the history of the internet. I'm ready. I I am ready for it. So so now my rant begins. Wow, I feel like I'm back at the Thanksgiving dinner table. (laughs) Um, (laughs) The web was created in 1989 with this vision of a decentralized and open network of information where users were in control and not centralized platforms. So I really want to hit home on that first sentence because... I think a big misunderstanding in crypto is it's a new technology, but it's also a new value system. And I would actually push back. Yes, the technology is new, right? Blockchain technology has only been around for you know a little over a decade, but the value system is actually not new at all. This is really, you know, the same values that the internet were created with. During this first era of the internet, we saw companies emerge like Google and Yahoo and Amazon. Uh, but honestly, the consumer experience was pretty poor. In Web 1, all of these companies were built on open protocols. So you can think of HTTP and SMTP. And anybody who was highly technical could build on them, right? So, you know, that's why we have Gmail. It was built on SMTP. And so, you know, the consumer experience was very poor. Actually, like, (laughs) you can look up these really funny interviews of people talking about the internet in the early 90s, and they have no idea what it is. Like, it was really just reserved for people who actually understood how to engage here. And so that's why the movement from Web 1 to Web 2 is really important. Basically, over the next couple decades after Web 1, as those platforms reached scale, like the ones I mentioned, Google, Amazon, etc., consumers migrated from the open services built on those protocols to more centralized ones that were more sophisticated and just honestly had a better consumer experience. So this is where we kind of come to a trade-off. So I believe that the internet is the best invention of our century. And so the movement from web one to web two was really great because it provided billions of people across the world access to the internet and all of its technologies. So now for the first time, the internet wasn't highly technical. You know, anybody could use it and anybody could interact with it. And that was a good thing. But it was also hard because when centralized platforms took control in Web2, I think it made the internet less innovative and less dynamic because it made it harder for individuals and groups and businesses to create things online without concern or fear of these centralized platforms taking control. And this is still a problem that we see today. I honestly think we've just gotten so used to it that we have accepted it as normal. Um, You know, I gave the example of Apple taking a 30% cut of all revenues from apps on the app store and seeing, you know, similar kind of revenue cuts from the other marketplaces I mentioned, like Cameo and Patreon and Substack. 
Um, and when we think of Web3, you know, for the first time, it doesn't have to be this way. So this brings us to Web3. I think it's the next era of the internet and, and the future of how we will interact and engage online. The way I see it is Web3 will combine the decentralization of Web1 with the really powerful and sophisticated consumer experience of Web2. It'll provide, you know, for the first time, a level playing field for these individuals and groups and businesses to create things online. And it'll take us back to the original values of what the internet should have been all along. So these are kind of like the buzzwords that I use. Decentralized, first of all, community governed, efficient, innovative, accessible, and dynamic. So this is what gets me so excited about Web3 is really thinking from first principles, why was the internet created and what does it allow for users as a level playing field to really grow and engage online with one another? And, you know, where did we fall short in the movement from Web1 to Web2 and how can we fix it? So that's what gets me so excited. And it should, like, those are all really good words. And and thank you, because that was perhaps the most, like, complete and understandable definition that I've gotten so far. But I think that, that you know, when we talk about what Web3 could be, it's often those words that you mentioned, things like, um, you know, community governed, and it's dynamic, and there's all sorts of innovation, because it is decentralized. And we'll get to why that is in a second. I want to understand how my experience as a consumer, right? And perhaps this is like a bit self-centered, but I think this is what a lot of people get lost on. Right now, we're having this conversation using a service called Riverside, using it's available only on Chrome browsers. Like, how will my experience using the internet to do my job, which is to talk to people like you, change under Web3 compared to Web 2. Like this is my Web 2 experience. And I think a lot of people can probably picture exactly what my screen looks like right now. I've got my Google Doc open on one side and my other Chrome browser opened on the other screen. And that's how I'm doing this interview. How will Web 3 change that? Like what will the internet experience be like on Web 3 for the average consumer who's not like doing the the crazy stuff that we were talking about in the beginning, like all the, the Art basil stuff? Like what does that look like? The first thing I'll say is it's going to be a whole lot more transparent than it is today. So you mentioned all of these tabs you have open, Riverside, Google Docs, whatever. What you don't see is all of your data being streamed to those companies kind of in the background. Yeah, shit. It's really incredible to be able to go to different websites in Web3. Let's say, you know, OpenSea, Zapper, Rarible, and simply have all of your data there just already exist without needing to create an account on that website or export and import a new account or sign in with Facebook, which feels like so out of date already. Web3 really makes me believe in a new era of the internet that isn't full of ads, isn't full of cookie consent forms, doesn't have dozens of sign-on services or tracking going on in the background that you may or may not know about. So it's really, you know, an anonymous version of yourself that has extreme optionality of what you want to share and when. And your data exists everywhere as long as you take your wallet with you. So it's really, you know, in your hands of, of what you want to share and how. What I'll say also, though, is this is just me personally, I am not a a decentralization maximalist. I don't think decentralized networks are a silver bullet that will fix all of the internet's problems. You know, maybe Web3 will be huge a decade from now, but you'll still be using Riverside and still be using Google Docs. And I think that's okay. But I think decentralized systems do offer a much better approach than centralized ones. And we're off to a really good start. And so I guess with that, like what we can talk about today is kind of what has happened so far and what's exciting about it. And maybe like the pitfalls that we should be worried about. But again, like we have a long way to go and and this is really just the beginning. 
Yeah. And and that's that's comforting in a lot of ways to understand that, you know, the the experience of using the Internet as a tool for information and communication, like the core tenants are still going to exist. It's not like any of those are being taken away. It's that they might be improved upon. They might be added to. We might have supplementary kinds of services, which I think is is important with this conversation around decentralization versus centralization of the Internet. I think this is in a lot of ways why we kind of have this conversation in tandem with the crypto conversation. So can you explain like why exactly these two worlds are so closely tied to one another when we think about Web3 and like the crypto community that has been like beating their drum for for 10 plus years now? What is the tie there? Like, why is this the conversation to follow up the crypto conversation? Yeah, sure. So in the last episode, you were talking primarily about Bitcoin, which allows for peer-to-peer transactions. And the guests you had on in that show explained it very well, so I won't try and compete there. What Web3 really is, is peer-to-peer anything. So uh, you mm-hmm. talked about Bitcoin, and I think you might have talked a little bit about Ethereum. But wh- how I like to explain it, and uh, listeners have probably heard this, is if you think of Bitcoin as a digital gold, like a store of value, you can think of Ethereum as a digital oil. It's fuel that powers software. And Ethereum is just one example. There's lots of really interesting technology happening on other blockchains like Solana and others. But Ethereum is the largest right now. Um, and it was the first one that allowed for software to be built on it as well. So all of the apps that we can talk about are, again, like built on a blockchain, you know, of their choosing and everything that you do or interact with is kind of displayed or listed permissionlessly to that blockchain. So you can see who interacted where and with what wallet and when it happened. And, you know, that idea of like a public ledger doesn't really exist on Web2 software. And so that level of transparency is really valuable. Okay, that makes sense. So with that in mind, what exactly about that? You know, it, I think that there are pretty obvious um, reasons, especially with the the tech lash that we've been experiencing kind of like in the public consciousness for the last several years. There are obvious reasons why centralization of power when it comes to technology is not a good thing. Like, I, I think you'd be hard pressed to find somebody who would argue the opposite. But how come decentralization, this promise that Web3 offers of decentralization, creates an internet where, you know, you mentioned that centralized internet was less innovative and less dynamic. How does decentralization encourage innovation and and dynamism? Like, what exactly about it makes this better, aside from the obvious, like, Mark Zuckerberg of it all? (laughs) Yeah. So when we think of decentralization, we can think of community-owned networks, So like a co-op online, you can sort of think of. When you have a centralized system, as those platforms grow, they actually become more misaligned with what the users want. So an Mm -hmm. example that I use is Instagram. Instagram was created to share photos with your friends, right? We all understood that value proposition. And as a user, it was very easy for us, like, like you said, even at the beginning, to understand what it's for. But as Instagram grew what it needed as a business to survive obviously changed. And so, you know, the proof point that I use is when Instagram, I think it was last year or two years ago, changed the middle button from the post button to the shopping tab. And I can't think of a single user who was like, yes, thank God. Now I can click straight to go shop on Instagram. No, we all want to post on Instagram. That's why we downloaded it in the first place. But as Instagram grew, you know, to thrive and succeed as a business, I guess that was the choice that was in their best interest. But it's a perfect example that it wasn't what users wanted. If you have a community-owned network or a decentralized system, the users are actually in control. And so 
as the platform grows, users become more aligned with what the platform wants. And so they become more anti-fragile, more robust, more innovative, more dynamic. And so you're able to actually act in the best interest of the users because you're in control of how changes are made. Oh, what a perfect example, because that that kind of felt like they I think anybody can relate like they were trying to get our go, you know, like they were trying to to trick us to hit the shopping tab because that's what brings dollars in because user generated content can only get you so far. Then they got our data and then they needed another way to, you know, like we we totally. saw that it was super transparent and and like thinly veiled attempt to change us and to to change the experience on the app. There was another Instagram example that happened earlier this year that was another, like in my head, like, yes, bull case for Web3. And this was a couple months ago. There was a day when all of Facebook's apps went down. Do you remember Mm -hmm. like Facebook, Instagram, WhatsApp, everything was down for like eight hours. Yes. And like, okay, it's an inconvenience, whatever. But what got me thinking is if you're a creator who has made a living on Instagram and that's where your audience lives and that's how you connect with them and that's how you do sponsored posts and that's how you make money and everything happens on Instagram. If Instagram goes down, like you're what fucked. Happens? Yeah, yeah. What happens? So if Instagram goes down tomorrow, like all of these creators who have been like, yes, creator economy. Yes, we can make a living online. Like that dream is gone. And so you know, Web3 really unlocks this idea of actually owning your audience, actually owning your own data and being in control of how this platform is operated so these things don't happen. It's so important when we think about, like, beyond just the the Web3 stuff, like the, the next iteration, the next incantation of, of our economy, it looks very different from what it looks like today. And I have obviously tethered myself pretty tightly to the creator economy. I am a creator myself. My other job is to work with creators through smooth ops. Like this is, is something that I truly believe in. And it has been astounding because, you know, my experience as a creator is still like by most measures, pretty traditional. Like I have a podcast and a newsletter. That's a pretty traditional means of being a creator. But when I talk to people who I work with now who are YouTube focused or who are Instagram focused or TikTok, their experiences are so deeply tied to the decisions that a select few people make. And it's not just their experiences being a creator, it's also their livelihood. Like YouTube makes one algorithmic change and suddenly half of our clients are out of a job. Like that's the reality of the situation right now. Perhaps not forever if we're the conversation we're having today is any indication, but I just want to drive home that like all it takes is one small decision at the top of a you know the 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 war room of a YouTube or an Instagram to totally upend part of this new wave of the economy. And that's that should be unsettling. Like that that should make us uncomfortable, I think. Yes, absolutely. It certainly makes me feel uncomfortable. I think also, you know, you mentioned like having a YouTube channel and having a podcast. I think I also saw that shift of like maybe a creator started on TikTok and realized that like that wasn't a sustainable place to, you know, own a following and and make a living. And so now all of a sudden they have to have an Instagram account and have a YouTube channel and all of these things. And like the way you market and the way you optimize SEO and all of these things are so different on every channel because you have no say in, Mm -hmm. in what that interaction looks like. Yeah, it's so true. And you you have to not only tailor your approach to to creating content, but also like tailor your business approach in general. Your business strategy has to change because you want to have multiple revenue streams. You don't want to be beholden to one singular platform because it is inherently dangerous. So 
that that's a huge part of like the the business strategy of the creator economy. But I also think that this is a perfect segue to talk a little bit more about the ideas of community in the Web3 ecosystem. Because when we're talking about some of the more successful kinds of up and coming parts of this economy, so much of it has to do with community. We talk all the time on on Thinking is Cool and, and kind of just like in general across the internet about the fact that people don't want to follow brands. Like people want to follow people. People want to connect with other people. People want to find like-minded individuals and connect with them, whether it's in real life, whether it's on the internet, whether it's, I don't know, in the, the metaverse, like we have this need to create communities, to create circles of like-minded people um, who have some sort of something in common. And I think that there is a lot to unpack when it comes to the community aspects of Web3 versus any previous editions of the web that we've existed on before. What, what are your thoughts on community kind of in general, and then more specifically, the ways that community works within the Web3 paradigm? At a high level, community is at the core of how Web3 operates on a daily basis. Again, it's it's community-owned networks. I've heard that, you know, if Web2 is all about product-led growth, Web3 is all about community-led growth. Community members have real incentive alignment and upside in how these networks grow and evolve. And so, you know, if you're early to something, you can really become like a core member of, of how that network or platform is shaped. But really, community is baked into like so many parts of Web3. I don't even know where to start. I think probably the place that most people have seen is avatars and profile pictures, mostly on Twitter. So if you're at all on Twitter and now starting to bleed into other social networks, you've probably seen people with like a CryptoPunk or a Bored Ape as their profile picture. And you're probably wondering like, what does this mean? And like, why do all these people have cartoons as their profile picture? The way I see it is as our lives increasingly move online, we're starting to value our online identity just as much or maybe even more as our identity in the real world. And so who you are online and and what you associate with or who you associate with is starting to really matter. So avatars signal social capital, but they also indicate which communities you're aligned with and generally just like where you like to hang out online. And so there's really strong communities in all of these different NFT groups. The other cool thing is because these are all, you know, actual NFT assets, they're not just images, they allow for not just like social groups to form, but real micro economies in a sense of, you know, if you were early to CryptoPunks and now you own one, you know, that's like a very large and meaningful asset to have. And you can take part in the upside of that community's growth and development. So there's a bunch of them around, like just go on OpenSea and there's like thousands and you can spend days there. Um, but CryptoPunks is one of the first NFT projects launched in 2017. There's Board Ape Yacht Club, which arguably is like just as big now, but launched in April of this year, and then a bunch of other projects. And so like I have a Mebit as my profile picture, mostly because it looks like me. So I like it. Um, but I think that's a really good place to start of like, you know, it's not just community, but it's identity too. Like, who are you in this world? Yeah, I love that. And and I, I think that one of the my early introductions into like the NFT space and granted was certainly later than a lot of my, my peers. I was speaking with um, a friend, Maria, she works at public. She worked for Gemini. Like she's big in the, the crypto space. 
she was explaining to me that she had recently gotten into like an NFT community. And I was like asking a bunch of questions and like didn't really understand why. And all of a sudden it like clicked for me when she explained that there are entire communities that she's become a member of that are based on like women artists, like women NFT artists. And like, that makes sense, right? It's a group of people who want to support women in the arts. And so they purchase these NFTs, they become part of this community. And then she was going to an event later that week that was like a, a gathering on the internet. I'm, I'm like, sound like such a boomer, but like a gathering on, on the web of people who were all part of this community of people who wanted to support women artists. Like that makes sense. That's something that we can understand. Um, even if you're not in this web three world, like in the, the real 3d walking around in New York city world, like you can understand that, you know, that, that makes perfect sense to me. Um, but there's, there's part of this that I think that maybe requires a little bit of like context as well. And that is this, what is a DAO? Yes. Yes. Okay. Here, uh, yeah. Here we go. <laughs> okay. Like community, group, organization. Like, how do we how do we fit this into the existential sort of puzzle that we're putting together right now? Like, where does this yeah. fit in? Sure. So a DAO stands for a decentralized autonomous organization. For most DAOs that exist today, that means absolutely nothing. (laughs) I'll be honest. (laughs) Many DAOs today are not decentralized nor autonomous, but they are token gated groups of people who have some sort of, you know, shared identity or shared interest or shared affinity. And they all have incentive alignment with a token or an NFT to, like I said, take part in that community's growth and development. So there are DAOs for honestly anything. You know, there are DAOs that build software. There are DAOs that act as media companies and publish. There are DAOs that try and, you know, give out grants and fund the open web. There are DAOs that collect NFTs. There are so many. I'll give an example of my favorite DAO. This is actually what really convinced me to move into this space full time. And so I feel like I have to share because it just changed my life. But it's a DAO called Bright Moments, which is a physical NFT art gallery, which sounds insane, but it's a real physical gallery with NFTs on the walls instead of just normal art. And so I was living in LA at the time. This was like a little over a year ago. And or maybe it was earlier this year. My sense of time. I know time is like a flat circle now. It's like disgusting. Yeah. It was like, like probably a year ago around that time. Um, One of my friends told me there's a physical NFT art gallery in LA. You should go check it out. You can mint an NFT if you go in person. And I was like, okay, sounds cool. So I went with one of my friends. We like drove and like sat in an hour of LA traffic. We were like, wow, I really hope this is worth it. And we walk in and the gallery is literally empty except for one person. And he's like, hey. And I was like, hey. And he was like, hey. And I was like, is this the NFT gallery? And he's like, yeah, you're the first one here. And basically, uh, he walked me through the process of minting what they called a crypto Venetian. So it looked like a little character on Venice Beach with like a boom box or a surfboard or whatever. And it was a piece of generative art. So you actually didn't know what you were going to get. Maybe it was going to be a girl or a guy or holding something or wearing a certain article of clothing. And you didn't know what you were going to get until you minted it. But before you could mint it, this guy who was there had to tell me all about the project, all about the community, who is involved and and what it means to join. So this is what it means to have an NFT. This is what it means to pay gas fees. This is what it means to have a wallet that allows you to engage with Web3 online and all these questions. And it was sort of like an initiation process. And then I got to mint my NFT and it acted as a token to go back to the gallery and go to all of these different events that they were hosting only for Mm -hmm. people who owned the NFT. 
So it was a pretty crazy experience to say the least. I had no idea what to expect, but it was so cool because I found that they were collecting this really, really rich data set of what it looks like to bring people into crypto or bring them into Web3 because people from all walks of life were stumbling into this random art gallery on Venice Beach and getting the same spiel told to them and minting an NFT. And we've all now had this shared experience of what it means to join Bright Moments. And now anytime they hosted an event or a concert or a talk or a meetup or showing new art on the walls, you just showed your crypto Venetian at the door and that was your ticket in. So I started going day after day, meeting all of these people saying, oh, what crypto Venetian are you? And they would show me theirs and I would show them. And I got to spend a ton of time with the community. And this really showed me the value of what a crypto community or a DAO could really look like. So they were in LA. Now they're in New York for, I think, like another month. So I'm just sharing it because I want people to go stop by. Mm. And they're moving like all across the world. I think they're going to Berlin next. And you can go mint, you know, a crypto citizen in all of these locations, which I think is just so cool. And that is so cool. Yeah. Okay. That's okay. Thank you. That's like a powerful example. That makes sense. And and I get it. I think I get it. But like for something like that, I, I understand there's the value that you create and like inherently create in joining a community and you gain access to different kinds of people who you might not in your everyday life run into But what about something like, and I don't know what the reputation of this on the internet now is, like post the story kind of being over, but the Constitution DAO was something that so many people on Twitter talked about. And the the general consensus was like, we're going to go Nicolas Cage. You know, like, I think people maybe misinterpreted it quite a bit, but this was a DAO that was formed to attempt to buy a very rare copy of the United States Constitution it was unsuccessful in winning the auction to buy the copy. But what what is the purpose of something like that? Like if there is a, a, a more kind of physical sort of transaction that a DAO is working toward, like what becomes of it now? What comes next, I guess, is the question. Like now that we know that they didn't get the copy, what happens? Does that community dissolve? What comes next? I wasn't a part of Constitution DAO, so I'll preface that everything I'm saying is just from kind of the outside looking in, but I do think it was a really, really cool experiment. So you're right. It wasn't successful in buying the copy, but I do think it was successful in showing to a huge new audience who maybe had never heard of a DAO before what this technology can do. So the appeal of a DAO is it's internet native. And so as a result, it's incredibly accessible and you can work really, really quickly together and also have everything recorded on chain. Like I said, kind of like hashed to the blockchain. So you have that public ledger of what has happened. Pair that with the fact that like we are real people and we have goals and we have ideas and we want to work together. And then being able to have that real, you know, financial upside in doing so makes these communities really interesting and really meaningful. Again, this is from the outside looking in, but I think the Constitution DAO started as just kind of a group of friends who saw this Sotheby's auction happening and they said, well, what if, you know, what if we bought it? And then, you know, very quickly, like spun up this DAO using technology that's already accessible online and, you know, told their story to a bunch of people. And so many people were able to join Constitution DAO, set up a wallet for the first time, be involved in their very first DAO donate to this cause and work towards this goal, which I think is really, really admirable. I have no idea what happens next for them just because I'm not involved. It kind of depends. Maybe they'll use their token for something else. Maybe they'll just shut it back down. But I think that story is really cool of of what this can look like. 
Yeah. And the memes were so good. So good. So good. So I think that that the Constitution DAO is perhaps a bit more of like a novel application of Web3 technology. But what about more like practical applications in the the economy as we understand it today? Like, let's talk through what Web3 can actually do to kind of upend businesses or, or even just like entire swaths of the economy today as we understand them. Like, what is the biggest practical application of this sort of technology. It's hard to just pick one because again, I, I keep calling web three, just like this next era of the internet. And so anything that yeah. we do now, imagine this, but decentralized. And so I can give a couple like big buckets. So first would just be your web three essentials, I guess I would say. So the first thing is you would set up a wallet actually over Thanksgiving. I like set up my dad and his friends with their first wallets. And then I sent them an NFT saying, you know, <laughs> Gabby set up a wallet for me and all I got was this NFT. <laughs> but I told them like, this is the first step that you have to do in order to engage with anything else. So you can have a wallet like MetaMask or Rainbow or Phantom if you're using Solana. And the next thing I had my dad and his friends do was get an ENS domain or Ethereum name service. So the same way you could have, you know, like thinkingiscool.com, you could have thinkingiscool.eth. This is your Ethereum address. So now if somebody wanted my public wallet address, maybe to send me some money or to send me an NFT or something else, I could give you, you know, the long string of letters and numbers that is my wallet address, or I could give you gabby.eth. And I think this is a really important step in having kind of a sense of identity in Web3 and, and how you exist in that space. Now, like I said, there are so many things you can do in Web3. So I'll just kind of give some buckets kind of along this line of NFTs. There's art marketplaces where you can mint, buy and trade non-fungible digital art. Um, so there's Zora, Foundation, Super Rare, OpenSea, Artblock, so many more where you can connect your wallet, see what you have in your wallet and you can use the money that you have in that wallet to buy something straight from that site. There's music. I could go on a very long rant of like why the music industry is very messed up for creators today. For creators yeah. and <laughs> artists, I guess the way I'll I'll give my rant in like two sentences is let's say you sell a piece of art or you sell a song. You get paid for that first sale, sure. So like let's say you know I sold you something for $5, you know like a picture. And then you sold it to your friend for $10 and then that friend sold it for $20 and then the other friend sold it for $30. That's great. And it seems like it's an appreciating asset, but I actually had no upside and I was the creator of that work, but I have no way to track where that piece of art went, right? Like when it leaves my hands, it's gone. If you have something as an NFT, a non-fungible token, it's encoded on the blockchain and it's linked to some digital or, or physical content providing that proof of ownership. So I can program in with smart contracts, a royalty fee. So anytime it's resold, I get a percentage. So actually that's good for me. I want my work to be shared. I want people to sell it and resell it and resell it and show it to their friends because I actually benefit every single time. And so do they, if they continue to sell it as well. So I listed those art marketplaces in music. There's catalog where you can collect and trade and listen to music where, like I said, artists will receive 100% of the first sale and then also set those royalty fees up front. Um, there's also Audius, which is a music streaming and sharing platform. There's so much that you can do in DeFi, which I feel like needs like a whole other episode, but <laughs> there's lending protocols like Compound and Aave, where again, you can connect your wallet and engage there. There's portfolios like Zapper and Zerion to track and visualize all of your assets in one place. 
And then there's token exchanges like Uniswap and SushiSwap and all these places where you can exchange assets from one to the other. And mm-hmm. all these things, like I said, you bring your wallet with you and that enables you to sort of log in with your wallet and that data is yours. Yeah. And I appreciate all of the the different iterations of how this works, right? Like all of these things are still nascent here. One of the earlier points you made in this conversation, we're still so early in all of this, but I think that the promise is there and like all of this sounds really good. And with that, I guess kind of naturally given my line of work as like a journalist and somebody who tries to think about difficult things, like that much promise always kind of like sets off the alarm bell in my head of like, okay, but what, what is the risk here? Like, what is the biggest risk to the practical application of Web3 tech right now? And I think like the, the regulatory question is probably a big one post tech lash, but what in your view is the biggest risk when we consider all of the incredible promise and all these great buzzwords like innovation and community? Like, what are you worried about with Web3? What I am most worried about is we will create a system that is just as exclusive and inaccessible as the one before. This is what scares me a lot. And selfishly, it's why I like sit on so many panels and talk on so many podcasts and I try and write and I tweet all the time. And if I ever find like cool alpha, I will literally tweet it out to all my followers because I want everybody to be involved. Obviously, there's a lot of upside in being early and there should be, but I don't want Web3 to bring a sense of like gatekeeping or a whole new sense of, you know, big players and monopolies at the top that control how this ecosystem is run. Um, Again, when we think back to the first principles, it's dynamic and it's accessible and it's community governed. And, you know, there's a world where that doesn't happen. and, And that certainly worries me. And so I think the best thing that we can do right now is like continue to have the conversation, onboard people into the space. It's why I'm investing in these consumer on-ramps of like, how do we bring people into the space who might not know or care right now? How do we make them feel like the space is accessible to them? There's another investor in the space, Paris Rosati, who tweeted something out that like really resonated with me. And so I had it saved, but she said, if we create a world of more exclusive groups based on even more exclusive assets, what have we really done for humanity? Is this what we are calling decentralization? And I think she's exactly right. I think we really are off to a good start, like I said, and I do think these decentralized systems offer a much better system than centralized ones, but it's really important that we have the conversation and make sure we know that like that is a risk. Yeah, and, and especially you know when we think about like this entire idea of community governed, having conversations can actually affect a lot more change in a community governed ecosystem than it can like me getting on my podcast and talking shit about Mark Zuckerberg. Like you can affect more change in a community governed ecosystem than you can under the the current web two like paradigm. I have a lot to learn, but I, I think that's what excites me most is this idea that you can affect change. Um, because I, you know, I, I yell a lot and I say a lot of angry things on the internet about people in power, but like essentially all I can really do right now is vote. And like, that's what I do. And I try to affect change where I can, and I try to have conversations when I can, but I am not Joe Biden or Nancy Pelosi or anybody else, right? Like the, the change I can affect is limited in this ecosystem in which we're operating in the mainstream today. That might not always be the case, which is pretty cool to think about. Um, so thank you. This has been like such a, a fantastic resource for me personally, but I think also for anybody who's listening to this, there remain to be a lot of like questions. So I'm just curious. I know that you have a, a reading list, which I will link in the show notes and put out with like all of the stuff that I share about this episode. But what other resources do you look to as you know this, this technology evolves and the communities evolve with it? There's so much and there's so many ways that you 
you can get involved. So the advice I give is like, just jump in and find what is exciting to you and start contributing. And so the tactical advice I give is read everything on the reading list, you know, set aside a couple hours to read it. And then if you're on Twitter, you should follow everyone who wrote things on that reading list as a starting point. And it gives really good insight into what people who are deep in the space are doing and reading and writing and who they talk to and what they think about and what gets them excited. And it's a really good way to be a part of the conversation. Um, If you want to get started by, you know, earning crypto of your own, there's two applications that I think are great. One is rabbit hole. So if you go to rabbithole.gg, you can use a variety of decentralized apps and earn tokens. And another one similar is called layer three. So layer3.xyz, you can kind of complete bounties that different online communities or DAOs need done, and you can earn tokens for your time. So I think those, those are two really good places to get started and feel like you're kind of like in the flow of things. Um, so yeah, just jump in. Amazing. Thank you. And thank you for all of this. This has been such a great conversation. And I think, you know, this is kind of the the double-edged sword of doing these continuing the conversations is that we bring up a conversation that a lot of people had after I released an episode, and then inevitably it brings up a bajillion more yeah. questions. <laughs> <laughs> I hope that we will continue to keep the conversation going to talk about what's important in Web3 as all of this continues to grow and evolve and change and uh, change all of us with it. So Thank you. And I look forward to continuing to tweet you for questions. I appreciate your time, Gabby. Thank you so, so much for talking with me today. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Thinking is Cool and continuing the conversation with me. If you have any questions about Web3, decentralization, or what the heck a board ape is, I have included Gabby's reading list in the show notes. I highly recommend you check it out. Um, And as always, you know where to find me if you want to continue this continuation of the conversation. My email is kinsey at thinkingiscool.com and you can slide into the DMs pretty much anywhere else across the internet of, well, the Web2 internet. I hope that this episode has made you eager for more thinking is cool because I have been working on season three and I have never been more excited to share ideas with you guys. It's going to be a monster of a season and I cannot wait for January. I'll see you then or maybe before. Remember, thinking is cool and so are you. I'm Kinsey Grant and I'll see you next time. 